Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This show is produced by Ben Murray. On today's episode, we spoke with Brady Speth. Brady is our first Air Force veteran on the show. He served as an air traffic controller before moving on to serve as a federal officer in the U.S. Capitol Police. In 2015, Brady decided to leave that position so he could jump in full-time on a company that he had founded with his wife, Carrie, called Right On Optics. They make rifle scopes, gun sights, and binoculars. I was fortunate enough to sit down with him at Right On HQ in Tucson, Arizona. My wife, grateful every day for her, she's always kept her corporate job. So that gave us a ton of flexibility of taking chances, taking risks, right? Like at the end of the day, it was like, well, go big or go home. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. So thanks for essentially like producing our podcast for us yeah, Lord, <laughs> with, the studio, with the studio and the gear and everything. Yeah, all I really we can do to help. need to do is take the SD cards home. Uh, you said you started something called like right on Academy. Um, so, yeah, so we, uh, we started a it was kind of a joint thing we we it's called right on university um okay it was kind of feedback from a lot of the customer service things that we've had um and we started getting a compile list of questions the customers have been asking and then part of what we noticed with because we we have entry-level optics all the way up to to two thousand dollar plus optics so we we started kind of categorizing what people in that lower end were, were asking versus higher end and then kind of started to put together a list. And then we started kind of, we call it right on university. It's just education. Mm-hmm. Um, we literally started one one How do you, what does a three by nine by 40 mean? You know, just something super simple. And yeah. we work it all the way up to wind calls and parallax and holdovers and getting dope and kind of a to Z we've kind of done it and we're, we add to it every month. We put new ones out every week, but like you just bought your first scope. How do I actually zero this thing? Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. We even started with even a step before that of like, so you have a gun, <laughs> what kind of scope do you need? What are right. your applications? What are your, you know, right. cause it's, we realized that we literally would get people calling in saying, I bought a gun and you're like, okay, what, what kind of gun? Well, um, it's an AR. Okay. What are you going to use it for? And, you know, just realize that there's a lot of uneducated or a lot of not necessarily on purpose. A lot of people in the shooting industry, um, were, it's, were given to their dad, you know, their dad gave them a gun or they, they took what their friend gave them and took it there and they didn't really know. Then they learned how to use it, but they didn't know really know why. And so that's kind of something we've done a lot is the education of why. Yeah, so they don't need like the Hubble telescope on there. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is a huge one that we've seen is everybody wants more magnification than necessary. Yeah. Um, we go up to 32 power on some of our high-end optics, but I, I don't want to say this, but I, I've never shot anything at 32 power. It's right. nice to look at something, but yeah. to pull the trigger, your field of view is so limited that it's it's very limited in what your application is for something at that high yeah. of a magnification. Kind of want your like ability to grow with the hardware. Yeah. I guess. Yeah, it, it's interesting because, and really over the last, it depends on how long you've been shooting. Because when we all grew up, it was you know a three by nine, a three to twelve. That was about it. You weren't you know there used to be fixed four powers in the military and stuff like that. It wasn't yeah. you know the the last decade or so, ten fifteen years, the technology in the optics world has kind of gone crazy. So now we have the ability to to grow with the type of firearms that are coming out now. Yeah. 
So you're from Montana. Yep. So we have kind of similar, or sorry, opposite. Very, <laughs> very dissimilar upbringings. Yeah. Uh, as a city kid and then as a kid growing up, like ranching, I think I heard yep. you say somewhere like you you would hunt to eat. Yeah. Growing up. We, uh, that was a, a big part of our lifestyle was that. I mean, we had, we had black Angus cattle, which is some of the, you know, the best meat in the world, but that was our business. Yeah. So a lot of the hunting we did was putting food on the table. So that was a, that was a big part of my upbringing was going hunting deer and elk and moose and whatever else we could find. Yeah. It's beautiful. You said Missoula, Bitterroot. Yeah. Kind of the far Western part of, of Montana. Yeah. Yeah. I've been there once. It's like incredible. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a sweet spot between June and August where it's probably the greatest place on earth. And then you get those random, like the first time I took my wife to go up there when we were, which I think we were still dating. I talked to her and going to Montana with me and I was like, it was late May. And I was like, it's, you're going to love it. It's going to be awesome. We land, get the rental car. It starts snowing as we're leaving the airport. And I was like, uh, maybe this isn't the greatest first impression. <laughs> this uh, is uh maybe we'll come back in another month when it actually gets above freezing. So. I had someone just offer me a ride from the airport. Yeah. Like the people are so nice. Yeah. They're like, are, are you from here? No, I got a rental car. It's not at the airport. It's down the road. You want me to take you? I'm like, are you a Uber or taxi? Like, no, I'll just take you. No, Adam is here. Yeah. <laughs> like, holy shit. Yeah. That's uh, that's, that sounds like how I grew up. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. At one point we lived on a ranch where my nearest neighbor was 45 minutes away. Um, oh. So it's still very rural, very, there's more people in Metro Tucson than the state of Montana. And it's the fourth largest state. So yeah. it's very spread out, but very, people are definitely very, for the most part, obviously everybody has its own ups and downs, but very giving and very like, look after your neighbors kind of, kind of people. Yeah. Huckleberries too. Yeah. Yeah. Were you there during Huckleberry season? No, but I got a funny Huckleberry story. Just yeah, cause my, so uh, a buddy of mine, Bo, he's got some family that live up there. Okay. And when we went, um, he was saying, he was saying, Oh man, we gotta, we gotta find some Huckleberries or Huckleberry pie, whatever. And we go to a restaurant and on the menu, it says Huckleberry milkshake. And he, and if you know him, he's like, he'll drink two of them. Yeah. Um, surprisingly <laughs> fit though. Uh, but he, he's like, we need to get the Huckleberry milkshakes. And they're like, oh, you know, we're sorry. Like, we, we don't have any milk right now. And he goes, all right, Matt, you stay here and order our food. I'm going to drive to the grocery store. <laughs> he comes milk. back with two gallons of milk. <laughs> he gets a Huckleberry shake with dinner. And then, like, we take two to go. <laughs> nice. He's, he might as well get your milk worth. Yeah. yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was... Uh, that's a big one. And then up a little north, there's a lot of like cherries and stuff too in the, in, in the springtime. So yeah. spring, summertime. So yeah, a lot of wild kind of walking around, finding stuff to eat. Was your family like military law enforcement too? Um, my dad was, yeah. The uh, My dad was actually both. He was an army medic and then he was actually an Alaska state trooper. Um, oh, wow. I think like early 70s um, up in Alaska when there was... 10 or 15 of them in the whole state. Okay. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, he, he lived in Alaska right when, after me and my, uh, him and my mom got married. So yeah, he did. he was both. And then my grandpa was Navy during world war two. And then my great grandpa was military for that. So yeah. I got some fourth generation military. So nice. Yeah. So it was, uh, it wasn't something that was ever pushed on us. It was just, you know, I think just kind of a love for country and, and wanting to serve, I think was something that was always taught to us as kids. So it kind of, it just kind of came naturally, you know, it was something that I wanted to do when I graduated and yeah. 
you know, moved on with life. So you're like generations from Montana or your father um, kind of moved there after Alaska? Or yeah. What? So our, my parents, my dad, for some reason, always wanted a ranch. That okay. was like his dream. Um, and so he, he, him, once him and my mom got married, they moved to Alaska. He was Alaska State Trooper for a while. He worked on the North Slope, um, head of security for Arco Oil at the time up there for several years, um, but was living kind of that two week on, two week off lifestyle. And uh, my three older siblings were born up in Alaska. And I think they got to that kind of point where, you know, hey, I'm tired of you being gone for half the year kind yeah. of thing. Um, my mom was raising three kids um, and he'd always wanted a ranch. So he, started looking for ranches they, he'd originally grew up in utah um and didn't want to really go back there so he started looking kind of northwest and settled in on montana i keep saying when i get to like my 50s and i'm just done with you know because i'm a city kid yeah grew up in a city live in a city now but at some point i'm just gonna be like done with this my, i got montana marked on a map yes yeah the what's funny is growing up i couldn't wait to leave Right. I think we all kind of go through those. Yeah. Uh, like, I was like, oh, I can't wait to get out of here. Like, oh, this living in the middle of nowhere and the mountains. And the now I'm like, are you kidding me? That was like, <laughs> I would do anything to go back. Like yeah. could fish when I want and shoot when I want and hunt when I want. And yeah, it's kind of funny how you go through those phases of like, you know, you growing up in the city and you're like, yeah. eh, it might be kind of nice to go to the country and have yeah. some quiet. Yeah. yeah. What, uh, did you go Air Force right out of high school? Um, I actually went to college for a year and then realized that wasn't quite my style. Okay. Um, I later ended up finishing college after the Air Force, but yeah, so I was 19 when I went in. Okay. Um, I did a year of college first and then, and then kind of decided not really, not really for me. It was a little too, uh, not structured and not really kind of floating along. So I was like, I need to do something that fits me a little bit better. So yeah. I ended up going in about a year after. If I went to college when I was 18, I'd be a lot different. Now. <laughs> You're I, right. I, I would have just wasted yeah. my time. Yeah. Honestly. I mean, I know that about myself and I've talked to other people about that. It just wasn't that time for me. I definitely had a better appreciation of college when I did it when I was 26, 20, whatever, when I went back. Yeah. I definitely had a I had I put up with less crap from the professors that they didn't necessarily love that because I wasn't this impressionable 18 year old. Yeah. Um, so I definitely butted heads a little bit more with some of the professors, but I definitely took more from it because I realized like I'm not here just to have fun and waste my money. Actually, like <laughs> I need to get I need to get educated. I need to you know there was a more of a purpose. So yeah. yeah, I wouldn't have done good if I would have stayed for sure. What made you go into air traffic control? Um. My brother was a pilot, uh, and so I'd always kind of been around aviation. He was 10 years older than me. Um, I'd kind of always been around aviation. Um, I used to go at, a, at Missoula at the airport there in Bozeman over in a, a little bit further east of Montana. I used to go up in the tower and hang out with the guys, and my brother would go fly and stuff like that. So I'd kind of been around it, and I don't know. I, I scored well enough on the tests, and they kind of offered it to me, and I said, yeah, it sounds fun. Let's try it. So. Right. um in hindsight, though, it didn't fit me because I'm not the kind of guy who likes to sit and stare out the window <laughs> so very long. At the time, though, it, it was the right thing and it sounded like something cool. But yeah, because when you hear air traffic control, you immediately think like, you know, incredibly stressful job, like accidents happen. They're big accidents. Right. People get burnt out, all this kind of stuff. Like what? I guess. Am I missing anything off the list of like headliners for that type of job uh no it's a it's that's it describes and not it to be 100 well. percent negative yeah. about it no 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 but it's also like your your capacity to keep track of multiple yeah. things at once and kind of like 
mentally juggle? I mean, I'm sure you go home when you're new at the job. So one of those jobs you go home and you just like can't sleep because you just dream about the job all night. There's a, that, that's part of what I always tell people is air traffic control is, especially in the military side. I never did civilian. The military side is the, the learning curve is incredibly stressful. Mm. Once you understand what the planes are going to do a year, year and a half into it, you realize the planes just kind of do the same stuff unless there's an emergency, but learning the patterns and learning and keeping track of 12 aircraft in the sky at the same time. And yeah. you know, where everybody's at on the ground when they're moving, um, it's very, you, there were times where you would get out of working for an hour or two hours, go downstairs of the tower and just be like, whoa, sweaty and just burned out, you know, cause it was that busy and you were still trying to learn it. Um, later when I kind of got the hang of it, then it became a little more monotonous, a little more you, when there's an emergency, you're like, oh, okay, cool. We actually get to do something now. Cause especially on the military side, it was very, I was here at Davis Mothman here in Tucson, which is a training base. Yeah. So a lot of the same pattern flights and stuff like that would happen with the pilots. So you kind of very stressful. And then it kind of weaned off as is the more you kind of got comfortable and understood it. As you're new, do you have like uh, I'm sure you have like an NCO first line supervisors kind of, coaching you into the job what is that what does it look like your first year or your second year yes you so up i was a tower controller so you you have headsets you plug in you could talk you know through the consoles and on the radio frequencies and you have yeah you have a trainer that's right there with you and they can actually over key you they can right. they can talk over you they can unplug you so you can <laughs> shut the hell up when you do something stupid um on numerous occasions i got my headset thrown down the stairs and told to go follow it because i screwed something up um <laughs> so yeah it's very it's fun because it's it's still military so it's not like oh hey you should do this better it's like hey dumbass like yeah, yeah. what are you doing you yeah. know so it's a little bit more that adds to the stress too and every screw up you do everyone hears it there's no hiding from it there's mm. 10 of you in a small little area and there's no you do something stupid everybody knows about it so yeah. you get really thick skin really quick and then you you learn that you just need to learn the people that didn't succeed were the ones who thought that they knew the right answers all the time if you screwed up you said hey i screwed up and just admit it and move on and and yeah. that really helped a lot with my training through that. And I got a lot of respect from a lot of the older guys that have been around. Cause I was like, shit, I don't know, teach me, you know, and if yeah. I screw up, I screw up, I'll admit it. And that actually helped a lot with, with kind of learning and having somebody there helping you. Do you have to manage rest and all that kind of stuff like pilots do too? Yeah. So we're still on crew rest. Um, stateside, I think it's, can't remember anymore. I think it's eight hour shifts. So it's just like flight time um, yeah. for crew rest. So we still have to have flight physicals. We still have to have the same type of stuff as pilots. I think overseas, I think we could do 10 or 12 hour shifts, but stateside it's eight because we still follow under FAA rules. Yeah. So, yeah. What's a, uh, I know you said you didn't work civilian, but what are like the, you know, big differences other than, I mean, for me, just thinking right now, like types of aircraft, right? Because right. yeah. you got like A-10s that I see driving out here, <laughs> Constant, you know, like yeah. flying around, you know, probably more helicopters in a regular yeah. airport, that kind of stuff. But then you also have a combat job too, because we, happen to set up airports over there <laughs> right so like in terms of big differences from the civilian to military side like what, what um, makes it special like you said i didn't do civilian so i, I kind of know i never did it personally but the the civilian side's hard because you don't being in the military you you sort of trust the level of training mm. that the pilots have that you know so if you tell them to do something there's a pretty high probability that they're going to do it right <laughs> okay. in the civilian side 
you don't know. It could be just yeah. some guy who flies once a year in his some, little like, Cessna. Crazy it guy could, yeah. with a French accent. <laughs> yeah, just, and like, so you don't. On your frequency. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and so you don't quite really know. Um, I did a little. I spent some time actually in the tower when I was over in the Middle East and watching. English is the international language. I use air quotes because it's supposed to be the international language of air traffic. And you get a lot of that made me nervous as hell watching other countries control traffic because mm. the way they just didn't really care about stuff and pay attention like that wouldn't fly over here. So I think the discipline side of the military is what makes it. I think it easier actually um, because the pilots are a lot more disciplined. They have, there's a lot more training. There's a lot more everything that goes into it. Yeah. We're literally on the civilian side. Who knows who's showing up in their little Cessna 172 doing yeah. 50 miles an hour when you have a jet doing 300, okay. you know? And then the type aircraft, most of the aircraft, even though you go from a, an A-10 to a, you know, an F-16 to a Cu 17 they still all can do higher speeds. Even an A-10 can still go four or 500 miles an hour. Like they can still go faster than a little Cessna or something. So you have the ability to match speeds a little easier. And they're so much more maneuverable. If I tell an F-16 to do something, they can do anything, you know, um, yeah. where like you can't tell that to a civilian pilot. So it actually, what would you be telling like an F-16 to do? Be like, um, hey, I want you to fly straight up in if, the air for 20 if, miles. If there's conflicts or anything like that with traffic or if somebody was doing something they weren't supposed to and you had to avoid collisions or anything like that. Oh, yeah. Because um, you can vector aircraft. You can have them fly different directions, different speeds, different altitudes. Yeah. So just stuff like that where they, they have the ability to just do it a little quicker. What would be like a bit, pretty big holy shit moment you can remember? Um, I have a good one that was... Uh, I was still a young, young airman. I was working the weekend and I wasn't in charge luckily at the time, um, but I was working the weekend and we kind of go to a skeleton crew on the weekends because there wasn't a lot of A-10 flying or anything like that. And there was a C-5. I don't know what its cargo was, but there was a C-5, which is the biggest military transport. Fucking gigantic. Um, yeah, yeah, they're huge. Yeah, for people um, who don't know. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're huge. Um, they can hold tanks. They can hold helicopters. They can hold all kinds of stuff. So yeah. um and the runway, we have, we have a long runway here at Davis Mothman because of the Boneyard, so we could accept any type of plane can fly in and out of here. Yeah. Um, What's and, a long runway? Like five um, miles? I, I can't remember what this one. I think this one's, oh, wow. It's been, you're making me go back a couple miles, short of two miles, something like that, 1.7 or something like that. It's a, oh, okay. it's a long runway um, for normal, for like, you know, airport standards. Yeah. Um, and the C-5 took, he didn't go the full length of the runway. He actually took off from like an intersection, so partway down the runway. And I remember he was going and they just look like they're not moving when they, even when they're going fast, they just look slow because mm -hmm. they're so big and he's rolling and rolling and rolling. And he's getting at the end of the runway, we have a cable that like a tail hook could catch like an arresting gear if they need to stop. Um, and then there's another thousand feet of concrete past that cable. And then it's dirt and the C5 is going, going, going. And his front gear was off the ground as he drove over that cable. And he only had a thousand feet left. And so his rear wheels run over the cable and then his, the, for you to know, the C5, it has like a carriage system on the wheels. Like they're not just two sets of wheels. There's like 10 of them. Mm -hmm. And so part of the main gear was off the ground. The other part was still on the ground and it drove through the dirt at the end of the runway and just barely missed the fence at the edge of the base. And I remember looking at the guy I was working with and I was like, holy shit. Cause if it would have caught that fence, we would have. Yeah. Or even that cable, it could have got snagged in its gear. We would have seen an F or a C7 or C5 just slam into the ground. It would have been really bad. And I remember, because I was still new, so I was like, ah, nothing I could do. Once they start, they start. And uh, I remember the pilot came back on. And he's like, whoops, I guess we were a little heavier than we thought we were. 
And that was all he said. And I was like, uh, well, I guess if he's not stressed, I'm not stressed. Yeah, but I remember that to this day because this big old cloud of dirt's like flowing up from the end of the runway. And I was like, well, I'm glad he didn't crash because uh, I'm so it's so new and inexperienced. I wouldn't know what to do at that point. So, yeah, you start yeah. pushing a bunch of C5s yeah. down the apron after that. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, hey, man, yeah. you better take you're all, all you the can way get. to the end. You're yeah. not getting an intersection departure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I love those moments in the military where, like, so near death disaster. Yeah, and then you talk to someone, and they're either just like they still don't understand just how insane what just happened was, right? And they're like. Yeah, you know, it wasn't the best ever. Yeah. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I'll, I'll do better next time. You're like, do you know what you just did? Like, it, there was no stopping that plane once it starts rolling like that. So, oh. yeah, that was uh, nothing. It wasn't too crazy because obviously when nothing happened, it just, yeah, you know, not a big deal. But it could have been really bad. I yeah. uh, I remember it was like 2013 or so. There was that video of the, uh, I don't know if it was a C5 or a C17 but taken off from Afghanistan and whatever vehicle was strapped inside broke. Oh yeah. The thing yeah. Just, just like, went up and fell, fell over. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. That's such an insane video yeah, to see. It just kind of just falls out of the sky like yeah. sideways. Yeah. yeah. Just fucking un- yeah. unreal. Yeah. That was, that was not good. No. <laughs> yeah. So you didn't choose Tucson. I also heard when yeah. you first, yeah, it's kind of down, it's kind of down on the list. This but, was not on my list. And you I, can tell I've listened to yeah. uh, you and your wife's yeah. episode now. This was not, um, this was definitely not on my, I wasn't against Arizona. I just didn't really know. I, yeah. I, I grew up in the mountains of Montana. I wasn't trying to come to the desert. Right. You know? I wanted ocean or I wanted something that, I don't know, something exotic, not Tucson. Um, having said that, now I've been here since 2003, off and on, back and forth, back and forth. And, you know, this is my home. I love it here. But yeah. at the time when I got my first orders, I was like, where the hell is Tucson, Arizona? And then I got here in August and it was like 110 degrees. And I was like, this is miserable. <laughs> this is horrible. So, yeah, it was a shock. I remember, uh, it was funny, just guys driving down the highway with came out to Tucson. Uh, there were a few of us in the car and he goes, uh, I, I don't want to sound dumb, but is it Tuxin or Tuscan? <laughs> yeah. Oh, for two. When, uh, my kids, <laughs> I've, I have two kids, a six and a, when it's six and uh, almost nine now. And like the, my six year old's like, it's not Tucson. Cause she's yeah. like, she knows that it's not Tucson. Like, look at the spelling. So I was, it's not Tucson, babe. It's Tucson. Like you're going to try to teach her. Oh, yeah. oh man. Not to just like, but another story about my, my buddy's kid said, his kid said something the other yeah. day they were leaving their grandparents house. And one of his kids, I think she's like five. Uh, she goes to her grandfather. She goes, bye bye penis. And, she, <laughs> and they, Wait, and, what? Her, and her, and her mother was like, what did you say? And she's like, what? She goes, you do not call your grandfather a penis. <laughs> and she goes, well, that's what he calls me. He goes, no, he calls you peanut. And Whoops. she's like, whatever. Same, same thing. thing. She goes, it is not the same thing. Not even close. She goes, you know, like peanut butter. She goes, yeah, penis butter. And she's like, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no. And she stopped off at the store on the way home or something. Yeah. I was like, uh, yeah, let's not always count on kids, dude. Say the damnedest things. Yeah. Always. Yeah. That's funny. Oh, so yeah. work the Tucson worked out more ways than one because you met your wife here. Yep. And then I mean, as you said, you're here 18 years later. Yeah. The uh, I had a couple stents of I, when I got out of the military, I, I wanted to get out of here. My wife was it was working for IBM at the time, so I think she was in Chicago or San Diego, and so we lived there briefly, and then back to Arizona, 
Um, and then I, I joined the Capitol Police after I got out of college and moved to D.C. We did that for a few years. And then when we started Ride On, it was kind of, do we go back to Montana or do we go back to Arizona? Because mm-hmm. um, we knew both were good kind of gun states, you know, a good place to have kind of a headquarters for an optics business. And we kind of went back and forth, back and forth, and then kind of realized, like, I have a lot of family that's now moved down to Arizona. So yeah. um, my mom lives up in the Phoenix area. My brother lives up there. Um and honestly, I just didn't want to deal with winter anymore. After. <laughs> so it was kind of that one out was like, this is probably the better place and a little more employment. The, the the employment pool is a little just bigger here with the population and stuff. So it's a little okay. easier to find people to hire. And, and so that was kind of the ultimate decision back to back to Arizona. Yeah. So. A lot of stuff in between there, though. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so we got cover, you know, how'd you meet your wife? You end up going to school at ASU yep. to rival from her school, UA, <laughs> yep. UA. So can you kind of like talk about, so our podcast is about transition. It's yeah. about life after service. So when you're coming up on that time in the air force and then, you know, I don't know what else you were doing than school or full-time school. That was, you know, your, you know, focused goal at that point. Can you talk about that time. Like when you're, when you're leaving the air force, figuring out what to do next. I had no clue. Is the honest answer. Okay. I want it to be something romantic answer, but honestly, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do because I, I didn't enjoy air traffic control. I knew I didn't want to just sit in a chair and talk on the radio the rest of my life. I knew that wasn't for me, but that was my formal military training. So a lot of my friends and stuff still control traffic that I was in the military with, but I knew that wasn't for me. I'd always kind of been kind of an entrepreneur. I always was thinking of different ideas and different business ideas. So I actually went to school for business and entrepreneurship, thinking that, I don't know, maybe might spark something. Kind of said I was a little older in life. So school was kind of interesting because it was, I I taught, I feel like as much as I learned, because a lot of at the time was like group work and a lot of, you know, and I was in there with 18 year olds yeah. that were, you know, for my first couple of years. So that was, that was a tough transition to go from the military with like disciplined working military members to then now I'm in college with 18, 19, 20 year olds that yeah. all they care about is what they're going to drink on Friday night, you know? And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm married. I got like, I'm, I'm transitioning to a different part of life. Yeah. So, yeah. So I went to, went to college. Um, well, how did you feel yeah. about, like interacting with them did you kind of take ownership of like this leadership opportunity you had or i know a lot of times it's probably annoying but like how did you kind of react to that disparity a lot of that because i knew at that point in time like i mean we all went through that phase at 18 19 you're not you're not really caring about your your future for the most part you know you're you're just living life and having fun so for me i would i pretty much took charge of everything i was doing at the time because one i had they would let me cause they knew that I had some experience and they knew. Yeah. Um, and they also knew that I was kind of more on a, like a, I was taking third, 29, 30, 31 credits a semester. I was just cranking through college. So Jesus. I was like focused and like, I'm not here to screw around. I'm not that phase of my life is over. I'm here to do this and get it, get done, get good grades and move forward. So yeah. I didn't really leave any, any question about what I was there to do. And I think that was quickly understood whenever I had to work with anybody that was like yeah. either you know, help out or get the hell out of the way kind of thing. Um, so I tried my best to do that, uh, to lead and to kind of educate. I, I, I did a lot. Um, some of the, how do I put this? The more liberal classes I was in that you're kind of forced to take. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. Cause I definitely like, but I told said I butted heads with professors. I, you know, we, I remember one college professor, that we got in an argument over 
the troops in Iraq destroying artwork that was part of, you know, the history of Mesopotamia. Mm. And I was like, hold on. I'm not like, I vaguely, I, I like specifically remember talking about that. And I was like, it's not the troops over there destroyed it. Mm. You know, like she painted this picture that like our, you know, our army and Marine guys are just running around stomping on artwork that they took from Saddam's castles or something, yeah. you know, which couldn't be further from the truth of what the picture she was trying to portray. And I remember that cause I, I got in like an argument. I ended up talking with her afterwards and actually she kind of was like, which is funny is she was like, if you just stop participating as much, I'll just make sure you get an A. Like she literally <laughs> like bribed me to just stop doing what I was doing. So, cause I just, I wouldn't, I, I just, at that point in my life, I was, my, my BS filter was kind of full. And I was just like, I'm here to get through this and do what I got to do. I don't want to put up with, you know, so I would call him out on shit all the time. Yeah. And that didn't necessarily go over in some of the, she was a conservative school, but some of the liberal classes it didn't necessarily go over as well. So yeah. it was uh, it was interesting. I was I'm glad I did it at the age I did because I was ready to go to college at that point. So you guys living down here, or did you move up there for a little bit, or community? So we actually lived in Phoenix. Um, that's why I went. Uh, I'm, it's crazy. I went to ASU. I'm an ASU alum. I'm a U of A fan. I we just happened to live there at the time. Yeah. Um, my wife went from San Diego to IBM, transferred her to Phoenix. So we just happened to live there at the time. We lived there for okay. about three years, and that was the period which when I was in school. So yeah, so that's kind of how I ended up at ASU. Capitol Police pivot coinciding with the with being done with school. Uh, yeah, so I graduated, and then it was time to. I had to decide what I was going to do when I grew up. Yeah, and at that point, it was funny because I really I remember me and my wife sat down and had a lot of conversations, and I was my son had been born. Um, he was a couple years old at that point, and I was really missing camaraderie missing like a purpose missing kind of she and it was a rough time because she she used to give me shit about it because like i didn't really have a purpose like i had a degree but i didn't have a way to use it i didn't have anywhere to go with it i didn't have any of that and i really missed the camaraderie of the military a goal a drive a something to kind of strive for so i started kind of looking into law enforcement i had some friends that were local police departments and stuff like that but i wasn't really I didn't want to go deal with like the average, just street criminal. That wasn't kind of my mindset. Um, so I started looking on the federal side, ended up Capitol police was hiring. Um, the started a process with, I think 60 or 65,000 people. Cause they hadn't hired in several years. So they opened up hiring, okay. started application with about 65,000 people and ended up being one of 22 that got hired. Um, so it was a, six month hiring process. So it ended up taking a long time, but it was, I was trying to fill that kind of void that was missing um, from military service and stuff like that. I could tell. And I didn't really have, I mean, I had a business degree. I I don't know why I was going into law enforcement, but I think I was kind of missing that to be honest. Do you want to just like clue me in or other people about like the ecosystem that is federal law enforcement? Yeah. So Capitol Police until the stuff that happened at the end of the year last year and into this year. I'll kind of talk about Capitol Police and then talk about federal in general. But so the Capitol Police is essentially the easiest way to put it. It's not apples to apples. The easiest way to put it is Secret Service does protection and physical and dignitary protection for the executive branch. So for the president and first uh, first family. And and then the Capitol Police actually does physical and dignitary protection for the legislative branch. So for the Capitol Complex, Capitol Building, Capitol Offices, and then the leaderships of Congress, they have 24-7 protection just like the president does. Not quite to the extent, right. um, but they have protection and, and dignitary protection details 
So the Capitol Police is in charge of this. We have jurisdiction over the whole country because we're still federal sworn officers and we travel and we do different things with members of Congress. But our primary concern and jurisdiction is crime and or protection of, of the legislative branch. Federal on kind of a bigger picture, um, we have state, you know, or local, which is, you know, your local city. You have county, which is sheriff's office. You have state and then federal. It's interesting. We have jurisdiction everywhere, but you would never go into a to town and enforce a law. Right. It, that's not even though you have jurisdiction to do so. Every, every federal agency kind of has their own kind of what they're supposed to be dealing with. So um, the easiest way to look at that is uh, everybody knows who Secret Service is. That's kind of why I use that one. Yeah. Um, up until some of the events at the Capitol over the last six months or so, no one really knew who they were, which was perfect. Yeah. I love flying under the radar and just doing our jobs. <laughs> kind and, of the point. Yeah. <laughs> they shouldn't know who you are. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was kind of the, I did physical protection for the Capitol complex. My very first kind of duty station there was at the actual Capitol, hmm. which was super surreal coming from like a ranch farm kid in Montana to yeah. everyday driving to work down the, the halls like, of congress yeah, like or walking up to the yeah. capitol building yeah. um so yeah it was a, it was a really cool experience once again it didn't it didn't scratch the itch that i had i thought it would and it was it did a little bit for the camaraderie side but then it just didn't really challenge me a ton that was the one thing i got out of that it was very monotonous if there's a theme, if you can't tell. Yeah. And how long did that take? Um, <laughs> not, not as long as it should have probably. Um, I was only, I was only there for a few years from uh, two or three years, three or four years by the time I started to when I actually left and moved back. Okay. And that was kind of the genesis of ride on too, as I was still, it was a job. It was something to do, but it didn't really on a day to day. It was kind of just mind numbing. And I started kind of like, okay, wait a minute. I went and got that fancy degree. Maybe I should try to do something with it. Yeah. And that was kind of the genesis of ride on was during that time when I was at the Capitol. Was there a point when you knew that you can um, point to? Yeah. And I think, I think I mentioned in the, in our podcast I did with my wife a while back, I was doing, I have to can't remember which year it was. It was one of, I was there when Obama was president. Um, and it was during one of his state of the unions uh, where they come to Congress and give their long speech. And I hadn't been home for our second daughter. Our daughter was born. So our second kid was born. My wife was still working full time. I literally was at the Capitol for a couple of days, never left the building, just working the entire time. And I finally got home after it was done. And I looked at my wife and I was like, why are we doing this? I literally like, I, I don't care how much they're paying me. It's not enough. Like I literally just spent the last two or three days of my life, not seeing you, not seeing our kids, not being a part of our life and protecting. There's a lot of people that are grateful, but there's also a lot of people that we give protection to that are very ungrateful yeah. for that protection. And I'm like, what's the point? What are, what's the point of all of this? I don't see myself being here for the next 40 years. Yeah. You know, is there were 65,000 really other people who applied. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> give it to one of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that was, uh, that was the major tipping point where I, I literally remember sitting, I was tired as hell. I'd walked like 20 something miles and I never left the building. Yeah. And I literally sat down on our kitchen table. I looked at my wife and I was like, I'm, this is stupid. I haven't seen you in two or three days. Like the kids half the time don't know who the hell I am because I work while they're asleep and I sleep while they're at school and we have dinner together and I leave again, you know? And yeah. it just got over and over that kind of thing. And I kind of got to that point where that was the tipping scale or after that state of the union. When did, so we talk about the origin of right on. Mm -hmm. I think there's a little overlap but there's also this, like, you started out kind of consulting for optics before 
pushing in and doing your own thing. But yeah. also <laughs> what I also picked up was you worked for like a few years before even like selling a product. Yeah. So how important was that? And kind of get, <laughs> we can get into yeah. that whole story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So I started, I started kind of getting that itch of trying to find something different. And I started through some friends. I started consulting for an optics manufacturer overseas. I'd used guns and optics my entire life. A lot of factories in Asia that produce a lot of high-end optics, they don't, some of the countries, they can't even have guns. So they're very limited as far as they're very good optical engineers, very good at making optical systems, but don't really have practical any application usage or any experience with actually using them um, besides holding it up and looking on because a lot of them don't even have a gun to mount it on. Okay. Um, so that's where I came in because I grew up hunting my entire life. I, first time I shot a gun, I was four or five years old. And then my formal training, even though it was Air Force and I wasn't some high speed dude, but my formal training was tactical from military and law enforcement. So I kind of combined the two and that's when I started consulting. So I started working with them to kind of the, everything you see, not the optical. I don't, I'm not an optical engineer. I don't claim to be, I don't, that's not my world. My world is how it works, how you, how the user interfaces with the actual optic when it comes to the zoom and the focus and the turrets and mm. what it should feel like, what you should hear when you're clicking a turret, you can hear any one of ours and you can fill it with gloves on. You can feel every movement. You can yeah. hear the clicks. Yeah. So a lot of that's what I started kind of consulting on. And yeah, I did that for almost two years before we actually got to a point not to fast forward too far before we got to a point where I actually sold anything. Mm. Um, instead of having them pay me for consulting, I had them, I would give them an idea and like, Hey, why don't you just make this and make a prototype for me and let me try this out. Okay. And they would make one or two and send it to me. And then what I started doing is then I started sending it to all my military and hunting buddies and anybody that I could even remember. I even reached out to some people that were like, who the hell is this? And I'm like, didn't you used to shoot? Do you want to try one of these scopes? Yeah. Um, I just started sending them out to anybody I could think of. And saying, it's a free optic, use it, beat it up, tell me what you like, more importantly, tell me what you don't like, and then send it back. And I did that for a, a long time until we finally got to a point where we felt like we actually had what was back then our Mod 3 and Mod 5 line. We had two good lines of scopes that were like, shit, maybe we could sell these. Like, we might actually have something here. In the interim of that, we actually, after that State of the Union, and I'd kind of been doing that for a little while, that's when we made the decision of like, we'd started right on. I'd started kind of having prototypes made. I'd started kind of doing the basics of having a business, mm -hmm. but now I was working at the Capitol police. I now had a business I was trying to figure out. And then I had two kids and a wife. And yeah. now that time I already didn't have, now I had less of it. So that kind of came to that point where like, are we doing this or not? Cause if we're not, we need to stop wasting time on it. If we are, we need to jump in with both feet and let's just do this. Yeah. So that was a point in time where we're like, okay, I guess we're leaving this nice government job and the pension and everything that comes with it. And we're going to go be business owners. How much runway did you think you needed oh. from like personal family, like financial security, that kind of thing. Um, one of to, to get too deep into that. But, no, you know. one of the benefits that's always, that always helped us in the beginning is my wife grateful every day for her. She's always kept her corporate job. So she was, she'd been at IBM for 16 plus years. So she had kind of worked at IBM and had a good job and a good salary and 
insurance and that let me be a lot of lot more flexible and creative because that covered yeah. the bills yeah um and we live within our means within her salary and then everything else we could save or we could side jobs or whatever i could do our savings everything we then put into ride on knowing that like at least our bills were covered and we could live yeah. so that gave us a ton of flexibility of taking chances taking risks the first two or three years of ride on like I had nothing to lose. You're right. Like at the end of the day, it was like, well, go big or go home because I don't really work. It's not like I'm going to get kicked out of my house or I'm not going to be able to afford food. We had that covered on the other side. So that was, that let me have a lot of leeway. I've actually heard like a top business school professor uh, say like <laughs> one of the hidden keys to entrepreneurship is having a partner who has a really steady job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I will attest to that professor. <laughs> that is absolutely correct. Oh. Yeah. It just, it made it to where we've grown ridiculously for, we've had opportunities. We've had the growth that we have. We literally sell in every continent, but Antarctica at this point, Mm. the growth that we've had has been because of her having that stable job and us almost having a, I don't want to say like a devil may care attitude, but a, Hey, try it. If it works, try it again. If it doesn't work, we'll try something else. Um, And that's something that's been a success to a a big secret to our success is like, I've kind of had the freedom on the right on side of, especially in the first couple of years of just throwing a lot of mud at the wall and seeing what sticks, knowing that their, their consequences were possibly right on's failure, but not my family's failure. Mm. And that there's a big difference in that. You can, you can lose a business, right? But going financially bankrupt as a family is a completely different thing, right. you know? So yeah, her having that job and kind of what that professor said is that's a big success of ride on. You know? Was there, a, was there a point where she came on full time or is she still? Yeah. So she, she was working, she kind of transitioned cause then it was my turn once ride on kind of was a little more successful and, and starting to grow. I was like, why don't you take some time off? So mm-hmm. she took some time off. Um, and then she was working, working full time, and then she kind of has transitioned back and forth a little bit. Um, okay. So we try to, oh, there's a, here's another tip for you. If you're going to run a business with your wife, try to keep it separate a little bit because yeah. working together and it never stops. That's the one thing being an, an entrepreneur, being a business owner, like it never stops. I will work until nine o'clock tonight and I'll go to bed, you know, and then I'll wake up at four or five in the morning and do it again. Yeah. So having some sort of separation with your spouse is mm. paramount. How do you think? people are seeing that now with like uh covid and working from home Ooh, um i, I haven't checked, even if you I'm don't work sure, at the same company yeah you i'm pretty work sure divorce now. rates were really high yeah. over the last year or so if i'm not mistaken I, that'd be tough it's it's awesome that we have that same mentality and we can run a business together but it's you have to have some separation you have to have yeah. a little bit of that just to not be 24 seven in each other's face. Cause it, you need some space. Cause then it makes the other side better. Is that a combination mm-hmm. of like time away from each other combined with like time where, Hey, we're just not going to talk about work right now. We've, <laughs> yeah. We've actually started doing that and I'm, I'm horrible about it. And I'm not, I'm not a good example when it comes to shutting off. I literally will work, do stuff with the kids, do stuff with the family, go back to work, do whatever needs to be done. We just get it done. And we made that commitment knowing that going into this is we're not really half asset type people. Hmm. Um, so if we're going to do it, we're going to do it. So we knew that going in, but I've gotten a lot better of like, Hey, we're taking the kids to Disney. And I'm going to not bring my laptop 
Mm. And I'm going to turn my phone off. And here's a 50 minute window where you can check it. And if something's on fire, put the fire out. If not, shut your damn phone back off. Yeah. Um, we've definitely had to set boundaries with that because it gets, it, it'll eat, it's all consuming if not. So yeah. there's definitely boundaries that have to be set, especially when it's a company with your spouse. Yeah. Hey everyone, quick break in the action to tell some of our new or even returning listeners about how to uh, find out more about the show and how to support us if you want to. Our website is quite predictably thankyounowwhat.com. It's got everything there. We have our entire backlog of episodes and descriptions for you to parse through. They're also on your favorite podcast player. Uh, you can find links to our Twitter and Instagram. Both are also at Thank You Now What. Uh, you can buy a T-shirt, maybe. You can use the feedback form to tell us what you think about the show. You can even email us directly, thankyounowwhat at gmail.com, if you're more into that. If you really like what we're doing and you want to contribute to the show, you're going to see a couple links on the site for PayPal and Patreon. Uh, PayPal is more of a one-time contribution, whereas uh, Patreon is more of a subscription. Starting at just a dollar an episode, click the link or head to patreon.com slash thankyounowwhat to see more uh, and, and see what kind of some of the perks are there. Ben and I are deciding to do a Zoom call with our patrons. Uh, that should be scheduled by the time this episode comes out. Uh, hopefully we'll get a couple former guests to join, maybe a little Q&A or just sit around and bullshit with uh, some of our listeners. So, uh, you know, that's available to you there. If you decide to uh, contribute to the show, please know, and we always say this, that when you share with us in the cost of doing business for the show, that whatever doesn't go straight to production costs does get redirected to nonprofits that support or honor veterans. So never to us. Uh, you can get a good idea of what those organizations are by visiting the nonprofits page on the website. Each of them are run by people that we've had on the show or named after people that we know. Uh, and you can expect this list to grow over time. Very sincere thank you to everyone who not only supports us uh, in those ways, but really anyone who's out there sharing or even just listening to your first episode. We're very humbled that you enjoy the show enough to make it this far uh, or come back for more. Uh, if you are enjoying, please make sure you're subscribed to our feed on your favorite podcast player uh, so that you can get our latest episodes when they come out. Maybe subscribe to us on social media. We'll let you know about them there, too. Uh, if you're on your podcast player, go ahead and give us a quick rating, if you don't mind. Maybe a review. We always love reading those. Uh, finally, the simplest thing that you can do is go ahead and just tell somebody you know about the show so we can keep spreading by word of mouth. It's the most effective way. Thanks, and let's get back to the episode. I kind of breezed over this, but was the was the point to have a company? And sort of like, is it your love for the product, or is it your ambition to like be self driven and kind of have that freedom, but to to do your own thing? Like what, what yeah. drove you into entrepreneurship versus the product you make? I, I think I'm lucky because I, I, it is the drive. It is, I would like to think that, I mean, I don't want to sound too arrogant. I'd like to think that I, I would be successful if it were, if I were selling something else to somebody else, mm -hmm. I'm lucky enough to, I have that drive and my wife has that drive, but I love the product and the world that we're in. So I have this perfect storm of like, 
if I wasn't in the optics world, me and you would probably talk about shooting or hunting or something anyways, because that's what I love to do. And that's what I do with my free time. But now I actually get to have a business with it. So I'd like to think that because of the work ethic and the time and just grinding that I could be successful at something else. I'm lucky enough that it happens to be something I love to do because I would be talking about shooting and hunting regardless, you know? So it's, uh, it's kind of a match made in heaven. The one disclaimer, and I'll throw that out there to anybody that listens to this, you don't shoot as much as you think when you own an optics company. Okay. <laughs> the uh, uh, When I first started, we were going out hunting and shooting two or three times a week because we weren't busy. Had yeah. a couple of employees, we'd go out fun. I literally, I shot this morning because we were, we had a, we put a target out at a mile and we went out to shoot at it this morning. And that's the first time I've shot at a target in two or three months it gets kind of all consuming and you kind of lose that a little bit. Yeah. Um, people always laugh cause I own guns that don't have optics on them. Cause I end up selling them off my gun or I end up giving them away. or end up doing something stupid. So I'm the guy that owns an optics company that doesn't have an optic on, on his rifle. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, to answer your question, it's kind of a, a, a perfect combination. I think that I've somehow lucked into. So let's talk about the point where it became real for you. So you talked about, you know, all your product development, your testing, you like, got your stuff into anybody's hands who, you know, you thought could give you any piece of feedback, send it to Alaska, send it to the jungle, send it to the desert, everything. I heard you tell a story about like your first sales and as an entrepreneur, you know, can you talk about the, the, the point in time where it becomes real and you kind of see this like payoff and you're like, Oh shit, this might work. Yeah. I have three times where it became really real. One, when I quit my job, Mm. (laughs) <laughs> something that I had worked my ass off to get that I had competed for that I, that was a big one. When all of a sudden I put in my notice and I was like, Holy shit, are we really doing this? That was the first true where I was like, Whew, okay. Like we're committed. And yeah. now there is no going back. I'm not coming back in six months and begging for my job back. Like that's it. So that was the first one. The second one was when I spent out of our own savings, something that we had worked for when I spent that first no, I'm not talking a hundred dollars here, two hundred dollars. The first chunk of thirty, forty thousand dollars, where I was like, "Holy shit!" And it took me. I drafted the email to to place an order, and it took me three days to hit send because I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna think about this." I went worked out. I slept. I talked the next day to my wife. Like it took. That was that was the second one where I was like, "All right, like once I hit send on this and that money goes, I work." committed there's no getting it back like that was a big one for me and then yeah and then the 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 really last one with the payoff is that first of like i was out of my garage you know i was a one employee show i bought some polo shirts and some hats and did some pamphlets at kinko's and i me and my wife went to a local sporting goods store and i met with the guy and i was like hey man this is who i am this is our product this is what we have and he was like well this is some good shit yeah, I'll carry it. And I remember looking at my wife and I was like, oh shit, I don't even know how to write an order. Like I, that was the big one for me. What happens like, if they say yeah, yes? Like, what do I do now? And I'm like, I get a piece of scratch paper and I'm trying to write this guy's order down. And they're asking questions I don't have answers to. And I'm Googling in the car on my phone, trying to find answers to things. And that was the, that was the big one with the payoff of like, wait a minute, somebody said yes to us. Maybe we're not as crazy as we think. Maybe there's somebody else out there that believes in what we're trying to do. Yeah. And that was a 
that was a huge payoff for us because it was like I still remember like we looked at each other and we're like be cool be cool be cool like <laughs> don't let this guy see us like holy shit and then we walked out to the car and we're like we just sold our like it was that was the biggest thing for us um, awesome. and then actually that same day we had four meetings set up and I think all four of them bought our product and I think that was a big turning point for us because up until then it was just a concept it was I think I'm doing it right I think we're doing the right things I think the data backs it up we're doing what we should be doing and then we got four dealers in one day to say yes to carrying our product and I remember that night we're celebrating and we're like holy shit this is all of those things we thought we were doing right now there's some evidence that somebody else thinks that we're doing them right yeah and that was that that day is burned into my memory of like Holy shit, a, a spiral bound thing from Kinko's. And I, I, I must've had my best, like, please, sir, can I, can I have some more face? Cause they, whatever worked, man. But yeah, it was, uh, that was, that's, that was the big turning point with payoff. You said your initial product line, you had like two, two core products, uh, two core lines, um, that had, had to think back. We had our mod threes and our mod five. So kind of our middle, our middle of the road lines. We didn't kind of have the budget line and we didn't have the higher end line yet. Okay. So, so when we talk about like your, what, your product catalog now, mm-hmm. can you kind of like break it down for us? Cause I mean, just as a look at the website, you have, you know, you have like long range scopes, you have yep. combat optics, which may be like smaller magnification or, yep. or more like red dot type of stuff. And then you have like smaller platform red dot stuff. Yep probably messing up all the terminology (laughs) binoculars too right one of the things that we noticed was the confusion uh, not to get too marketing and salesy here but the confusion of people back to our right on university the confusion of people not knowing what to put on their guns not knowing what goes on an air not knowing what goes on a a 308 hunting rifle not knowing what goes on some of those things there was a, a big confusion of that and we got a lot of feedback from that so one of the things we did to kind of describe our current product lineup was how do we simplify this for people so we have our our one three five and seven series so that's a price point thing okay um the ones are the lower end, threes, fives, and then sevens are higher end. So okay. that's just categorized based on price. So like if a you're, Beamer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it works for works for Ford, it works for Beamer, it works for every other company out there, right? Yeah. yeah, F-150, F-250, F-350, right? Everybody knows kind of the three series, five series, seven series for Beamer. So yeah. it was something that we kind of realized there's a reason that some of those multi you know, hundreds of millions of dollar billionaire companies are doing it. They probably know. And people in our industry weren't doing that. A lot of the naming in our industry is just picking random names that don't really correlate with each other. Mm. If I called one, the Brown series and one, the red series, you wouldn't have no clue. Was the Brown better than the red is the red better. There is no really way to correlate that. Um, And so there was a lot of confusion within our industry of, Whoa, do I go with that one? What, What makes this one? The, X better than the Y. I, I don't know. So we we lumped them together on price. And then the other thing we did, which has been really big for us, is we lumped them by application. So we have our primal series, which is our hunting line. That would be our binoculars or anything that's a dedicated hunting type scope. We have our tactics line, which is our red dots, our pistol red dots, anything lower magnification, a one to six, a one to eight, more of that tactical AR or, you know, a, a, a pistol type optic yeah. and then our conquer series in our long range. So what we can do is then say, well, what, t- what's your application? You're hunting. Okay. Here's our primal series and here are the X amount of scopes within that one. How much are you looking to spend? Okay. Here's our three series and here's the options within the three series primal. And it's really helped people understand 
what they're looking for and how to purchase. So that's kind of how we broke it down. And it's it's been going over really, really well, especially with our dealers as being some newer, kind of newer to the industry. Yeah. Immediately they pick that up. With our, matching price point to quality in your industry, what are the salient features in an optic? The biggest one is the one that, ever, that you see, the glass quality. So you can have really clear glass, really foggy glass, really etched or pitted glass. The glass quality is is probably the very first thing people notice because mm-hmm. that's what translate, you know, the, how the light transitions through it to your eye, how you can actually see in the shadows, how you can pick up a target. Um, so glass quality is the be- is the number one thing that is really jumps out. Um, the number two one is the, the turrets and you know, people can lump these depending on, but the turrets to me is the number two one, because if you have a mushy turret or a turret that doesn't track, if I want to dial in five MOAs of elevation and I click it to the five, it better go up five MOA. There's a lot of other ones that don't track like that. It might go four, it might go six. Right. So does this say zero or one or negative one? Exactly. Did I hear it click or am I just looking at it? Did I not? Did it actually move? Um, Yeah. So, so glass quality, the construction of the turrets and the tracking. And then a, another big one, and we design all our own reticles. So oh, yeah? we in-house, we design every reticle that's on any of our scopes we design. And your wife's like a math pro. Does she get in on so that? She actually doesn't. That's a good point. I probably should be using her a little bit more for that. So um, <laughs> no, she actually does it. The, uh, She's math pro on the finance side. I, I let her kind of control that and stay out of the way of that side, okay. well, yeah. <laughs> which is probably the smart one to do. Cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we design all our own reticles. So, we have very unique reticles that are with math. I mean, that's how they're designed with yeah. ballistic application and stuff. So that's kind of the, those are the big three that we notice. And then weight and size and, you know, different magnification ranges, stuff like that. But right. those first three are kind of the, the biggest ones that help us stand out. How does scope come together with like sourcing, assembly, design? Right now, I would say it's about an 18th, 18 month process for us to come up with an idea of of, for a new optic Hmm. we want to do this x and it takes us about 18 months before we actually can bring it to market so it starts off with almost what our customers start off with what is the scope we're designing for what application for us as a company what is missing in the industry and what niche can we fill Mm. so that's kind of the biggest thing that it starts off what are we missing in our lineup that people are asking for or what are we missing that other companies are providing or what are other companies not providing that we can be the sole provider of so it kind of starts off with that on the product development side and then it transitions into and by that i would mean what's the magnification range is it three to 24 is it one to eight is it you know a fixed four power we that's how we kind of figure out what's missing and then we start putting together okay what's the application so we need to design a reticle around that a hunting reticle is different than a long range sniper type reticle than a maybe a simple you know low power reticle so it depends on the application and then we design a reticle around that we try to design it around calibers that are the most prevalent for the application that we're using it for. Um, if we're designing a scope for a long range sniper platform, 
we don't put in ballistics for a 22, you know, yeah. we don't put in ballistics. So that's part of the design of the reticle. And then it goes from that to all of the features in it, what type of turrets, what type of adjustment. And we do that all before anything ever gets put together. And then, so we source our glass, all of our glass comes from Japan, which is a, a higher end type of glass. And we control that. We don't just pick glass from whoever offers it to us. We have a single source for glass and that's it for all of our optics from our entry level all the way to our higher end. We have one step up, which is our ED glass for some of our higher, higher end stuff. So sourcing of glass and then all of our stuff is machined out of solid blocks of aluminum. So then sourcing actual 6061 aircraft grade aluminum, believe it or not, there's a lot of other raw materials out there that may say that they're a certain thing, but they're actually not. So having a source of, of aluminum, having a source of glass that we can actually trust, that's something that we've I've developed relationships with and from the factory that I consulted with and then relationships I have. And then we assemble based on price point. So it depends on the feature set and it depends on the price that we plan to sell it at. And then we work with our different factories overseas to then final assemble it. And then we test it and then we tweak it and then we test it and then we tweak it. And that's kind of why it takes a long, uh, that 18 month kind of cycle. Jesus. Yeah. So it's a, it's a long process. I wouldn't even know where to start looking for like scope grade yeah. <laughs> glass pieces. Yeah. That was one of the, having done that consulting work while I was still at the Capitol Police, that gave me a huge leg up yeah. um, to where then I started having the relationships. And and just like any business, any anything, it's about the relationships you have with your factories, with the where you source material, anything like that. Yeah. So that, that definitely helped a lot. Going from the product to talking about the business, you've obviously mm-hmm. scaled from being one dude with you know yeah, the scopes on a shelf in my garage yeah, yeah. in the garage you know with uh, his wife yeah holding down the corporate job but helping along right uh i don't know maybe i saw a dozen people here today yeah yeah how's how's the business scaling gone um insane it's that's that's been tough we've grown we're the fastest growing office company in the world um we've grown in a ridiculous pace. Okay. So it, it's been a challenge to try to keep up with that growth. Um, it's hard. How do you predict, you know, I think we, we were looking at some of the numbers from three years ago, we've got grown 3,500% growth in three years. Hmm. How do you predict that? That's been one of the biggest challenges is having the right people, having, you know, marketing team, operations team, QC team, our sales team. We have, we have about 12 or so that work here. We have people remote from, other parts of Arizona, Utah, Texas, we have a sales team of about 40 guys that work through our rep group. So upwards of between sales guys and full-time people, we have 60-something employees um, and or contractors that work for us. So yeah, it's been to try to scale that from essentially nothing. And and I'd like to think that I'm doing a good job, but I have no experience doing this. So a lot of it's trial and error. Okay. I'd like to say there's some secret sauce, but a lot of it's trial and error, kind of what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. But yeah, just to, to be able to, one of the harder things is to predict that and watching the markets and watching how things are moving within our market and predicting growth and what's next, who's what what's our competition doing. Yeah. There's a lot that kind of goes into that, that now is actually I, I was able to hire people that I should have never been able to hire, honestly. Um, I don't like to tell them that very often. <laughs> but for being a young company, I got a, like incredible talent to come work for me. We have hundreds of years of industry experience that work for us, and we're a 
six, seven, eight year old company. So that's been huge where I could hand over divisions of the company from sales to operations, to marketing, to people that I trust. And now I get to focus on the business side of it a lot. So I don't really do the day to day anymore. I get to focus kind of on the big picture and, and how the company kind of morphs and moves a little bit. So how's that, uh, when you, when you reach that point to where, you know, you start off doing everything at some point you start handing off one thing, you hand off another thing, you're probably getting a little more efficient, a little more enabled as you grow. What were some of those critical points where you were able to grow in the right way with the right person doing the right thing? Let me first say this, that that is one of the most horrifying things to have to do when you, when it's been your baby to hand that over and be like, okay, here you go. Yeah. Don't screw it up. Yeah. I hope I hired the right person. Um, that yeah, was, and I guess yeah. like the, the leadership aspect of like being able to give that person the space yeah. at the same time. Um, it's, it's, it was tough. Cause uh, my brother, my brother has an organizational management, um, master's degree. And so I, I bounce a lot of stuff off him. And one of the things he said to me in the very beginning was create an organizational chart for your company. That's five or 10 years down the road and then put your name in every box. And now you have this org chart that's 50 people deep and it's all Brady. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, what is it that you can do easily that doesn't take a lot of your time and what, just keep your name in those boxes. If it's something that you can't do or something that you can find somebody that does it better, find them, hire them and put their name in that box. Um, And that was kind of the approach I took with a lot of it was how do I find, I I did something until I realized I I'm in over my head when it came to any of this stuff, pick a, pick a division of the company when it came to, to marketing, right. I can, I can do marketing, but I'm not an expert in marketing. And when it came to a point where I was like, I I don't know how the hell to do this. Now it's time to go hire somebody that knows how to do that. And that's specifically their job. So I slowly over the course of the last several years of just tried to find those people. I did it until I couldn't do it anymore. And then I find somebody that can do it better. And that's kind of the philosophy I've always had. And my wife, we've always had with hiring people is like, find somebody that can do that job better than you could do it. Cause if you can do it better, you might as well keep doing it. Right. So go find somebody that can do it better than you and then get the hell out of their way. And I think that's the, the, the second part of that is the hard part to do as an entrepreneur. Cause it was your baby. It was your job. It was like, well, I used to do it this way. No, you hired them to do it because they were smarter than you. They were more experienced. Than you. Some, some reason made you hire them. Yeah. So get the hell out of their way and let them do that. Um, it doesn't mean you still don't have strategy meetings. You don't have checks with them. You don't work with them, but yeah. give them the freedom to do stuff. When somebody asks me a question now and I'm like, I, I don't know the answer because I don't deal with that. That to me is actually like, I'm like, hell yeah, that's a good thing because that means I'm not micromanaging them at a smaller level. If it's a higher level question, I should probably know it. But if it's a day-to-day type thing, that's I'm glad that I can hand that over and kind of back away. So that's been the hardest thing and then the most freeing thing to do. Because once you can duplicate that over and over and over, now all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, I am at Disneyland with the kids and shit's still happening now. It used to be nothing happened. Everything was closed. I had yeah. a voicemail on that. It said, Hey, we'll be back on Tuesday. Yeah. You know, now, wait a minute, everything's still working and everything's still growing. And I'm not even here. I'm trying to enjoy some family time. So yeah. once you get to that point, it's very gratifying, but it's scary as hell to get there. There's some like famous Steve Jobs quote about that, right? Where he says, we don't hire smart people. 
to tell them what to do. We hire them so they could tell us what to yeah, do. Yeah, exactly. I, some that, um, I had actually had a, um, a captain when I was in the air force that he was, he came from kind of the business world. And he, I remember him saying that when we, we talked about just some leadership stuff one day we were talking and he said, find people that are smarter than you. It's super easy to have a room full of people that will tell you what you want to hear. It's hard to have a room full of people that tell you what you don't want to hear and that have the balls to actually tell you. And I think that's a big one that people don't quite like, I get in arguments all the time with our guys. I want them to challenge me. I want them to, you know, because you don't grow if you have people that are like, Oh, you're the greatest. You're whatever you want to do, boss. I don't want that. I want people that'll challenge me and question me and tell me why we should do it different than the way I want to do it. And that's been a huge growth for us is just letting them have that freedom. You said something else about like, anticipating market trends too and you're saying you know 35x growth yeah uh, and and being able to scale the business but also see the market trends something that like i just am curious about in general you can tell me how much does the news cycle impact gun sales as much as they say on the news but your your industry is like incredibly adjacent if not yeah uh, but, we tend to see in the, the accessory side of the of our industry there's a 30 to 90 day delay from a big gun run. So when something crazy happens and guns get sold and then we see it about 30 or 90 days later. So we're definitely adjacent to it and we fill it pretty quickly afterwards to answer your question. It controls the industry when there's a huge media push on right now, the president gun control or the new ATF director that's getting sworn in that says he's going to take away all AR 15s. Yeah. There's a huge run. May set another record again last month of of guns sold or background checks. Yeah. Honestly, the it's funny because not not even going political with it, but any president that comes in and says they're going to do gun control, more guns were sold under the Obama administration than any other administration in history. Yeah. More guns are being sold under the Biden administration than four years under Trump. It right. it it just drives that. So anytime anybody comes into office and says they're they're going to take guns or they're going to regulate guns or they're going to and the the news cycles pump that up, it just creates a rush. And then you throw in COVID, you throw in toilet paper shortage where people are like, Oh, I need a gun. Cause somebody's going to come rob my house for toilet paper. Yeah, yeah. And now all of a sudden you got these people who never bought guns. There was what, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, just millions of new gun owners yeah. last year. It's like, now I got all this toilet paper. So yeah, I need a gun I gotta, to defend I gotta it. protect it. Right. Yeah. And I think that actually we joke about the toilet paper <laughs> side, but I think it actually opened their, their mind to the fact that, wait a minute, maybe it's not really the toilet paper, but I also have food and I also have kids and I also have, other stuff that maybe somebody actually might want if yeah. this shit keeps getting crazier. Yeah. Um, if people are willing to beat each other up over toilet paper, guess what they'd be willing to do when there's a food shortage? Yeah. Guess what they'd be willing to do when there's a gas shortage? We almost saw that a few weeks ago. Yeah. You know, So anything in the news cycle, I think the me- mainstream media, in air quotes, tends to pump it up as the crazy gun owners yeah. and that part of it. But honestly, anything in, in the, I mean, mass shootings, anything like that yeah. has an effect. You know, and it, it's definitely driven by that. And COVID and has been a perfect storm for kind of the gun industry. And then Biden getting elected just kept it up there. So how do you react to that as a business? Because you said 18 months for a new product. You know, it's probably shorter time, but still, you know, pretty decent time to like, we need X number of units. Like you're, you're projecting production and sales yeah. and all this. It kind of seems like you got a gas and a break and you're reacting to what you see on the road. 
Yes. Or am I wrong? No, you no, you're correct. But one of the things, so an analogy I like to use internally is our company is set up and the way we enable our people is the difference between a a speedboat and a cruise ship. If I need to turn the speedboat, I can turn it right now. If I need to turn a cruise ship, it's going to take me two or three miles to turn it. Right. And so our organization is, we've always set it up to be that speedboat mentality. If anybody within our organization detects some sort of change, some sort of anything within the industry, we can act upon it really quickly. Um, we're very nimble when it comes to that. We've our relationships we have with our factories, everybody that we work with, we've maintained a very nimble type organization structure Mm -hmm. where pick any big company. It doesn't have to be my competitor, but if Ford wants to change something in a truck, do you think they just change it? Or do you think there's 10,000 boardroom meetings and 1500 marketing team meetings? And two years later, they finally change it. The overhead cost from any decision they make is, is insane. Make you throw up. Oh yeah. It's insane. And so that's a big part of us is we, one, we're smaller, but we're growing. So that helps. We're not, we're not a behemoth at that point where we're so committed. We're, you know, there's no changing it, but also in the way we have structured the company, we allow other, we allow people within the organizations to detect and help us make change. So when we saw something like a COVID rush or a toilet paper shortage, we can immediately say, you know what, we need to boost it because we can see this coming. And it's not an 18 month thing when that's a new product. So if yeah. we're talking about going from say, having I don't know, 20 scopes come in to having 200, we can actually make that really quickly change. Oh yeah. Um, so that's a big one for us is able to be nimble and be able to kind of try to stay ahead of some of that stuff. Yeah. And then from a leadership side on my behalf is taking the, I'm willing to take the risk. Hey, if my guys think something's happening and I trust those guys to make that decision, let's try it. I'll put in, I'll, I'll build more scopes. Uh, you know, if it doesn't pan out, then we'll figure out what to do with them later. But I would rather try to stay ahead and try to predict some of those and, and trust my team and trust my guys. If they think, Hey, there's people are being crazy about toilet paper. Maybe we should build more red dots. All right, let's build more red dots. Yeah. And it's kind of kept us in front of a lot of the trends. Yeah. So since we're Air Force and Army, I'll use another uh, maritime reference. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about stuff we don't have a clue about. (laughs) So I've also heard people put it this way. Like when you're a small, uh, you know, fast growing company, uh, you're like a pirate ship. Yeah. At some point in your life cycle, you're going to have to turn into a battleship. Right. So how, how do you think about that in in kind of like you probably have an advantage of being very nimble right now. Yep. What are your aspirations and are you ever going to get closer to that kind of Ford thing? Um, and how far away is that? I would be a bad business owner if I didn't say I wanted to be a battleship. Um, I think there's ways of doing, there's ways of being both. I know that's contradictory. Yeah. You can be a big company, but still not have processes in place internally that bog you down. We are not a, Monday morning staff meeting kind of company. We are not a, you know, let's overanalyze the shit out of this. I I give everybody freedoms to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so I think obviously our goal is to grow our, you know, I'd love to be, be the mighty Mo and be a huge battleship. Right. But I think there's a part of that, that you could still be nimble and, and enable your people to make decisions and not let it bog down internally. If that makes sense, uh, uh, kind of what I'm getting at, I think. Yeah. Well, I think those are the companies yeah. that we all have to study in business school. Right. These are the people <laughs> yeah. doing the right things. You and know. I, I'd like to think that we can do that. It's easier said than done for sure. 
but I think a lot of that's the management philosophy. A lot of that's the, the, I mean, you, I showed you earlier, we're flying drones around the warehouse, having races, keep it fun. Let people enjoy their job. Let people, they want us to succeed because they like it here. They like working here. They want to be a yeah. part of this. Every person in this company is like, they are family. I know that's cliche, but they want to see us succeed. This yeah. isn't just a come punch the clock and get the hell out of here at five o'clock type. I'm like, Hey guys, why don't you go home? Cause they're hanging out and bullshit in the break room when they should be going home. Yeah. Um, so part of that is just building a company culture that people want to see us succeed and want to keep us kind of, even as we get bigger, of course, things slow down, quantities go up. It takes a little, a little bit longer, yeah. but I think there's a way to kind of still mitigate that to where you're not, like I said, the boardrooms and the death by committee type thing. Are the people the most rewarding part about your success? Honestly, it is that part of it. It's, to me, on my side of it, it's having somebody almost like that first, the first sales we did, right? Holy shit, this guy believes in us, right? Yeah. To have somebody quit their job or quit something that they're working for family or they're working for somebody else and come to work for us because they believe in what we're doing. That to me is like one of the highest compliments that we can get as an owner of a company. Mm -hmm. If you'll put your trust in us to grow you know, we had a guy that has been here for about a year now that he took a pay cut because he's like, I see where you guys are going. I want to be a part of that. Mm. And you're like, holy shit, really? Like, because you is, I get bogged down in the, in the, just the grind. Right. And so sometimes it's refreshing to kind of come up and be like, all of these people, one, it's a stress around me. I had a lot more hair when I started this business than I do now, probably a lot lighter around the waist too, but the the stress of now I need to provide for them. I need to make that. So it's a, it's that mutual kind of symbiotic relationship of like, these guys are truly like bought into what we're doing yeah. where there were times when I started this thing, when I wasn't even bought in, you know, I was like, Holy shit, is this going to work? And you now have these people that are like, will bleed right on. And you're like, wow, that, that to me is more, more impactful than anything than any customer or any, you know, yeah. to have these people that will take that chance on us when it comes to putting food on their table and taking care of their family, you know? So that's, there's no bigger ass than that. What has your impact been on the industry? And it was there a point where you're like, we're rolling with the big dogs now. Yeah. When, when, uh, when people start telling us that other companies that I perceived as bigger companies are discussing what we're doing mm. in their marketing meetings, when other companies are talking about starting to talk shit about you, if, I don't know if I can, I, this is a podcast. So I can yeah, say whatever. Um, we have all military people on. So. <laughs> okay, we're good. Um, the, actually, the highest compliment I ever got was when another company talked shit about us. I was like, yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. They're talking about us. Yeah. Perfect. Because a year ago, they didn't know who the hell we were. So the, I don't care. Talk all you want. That's a compliment to me. We've been, we've had a good impact because we're, one of our philosophies, I don't want to give away all the goods here. One of our <laughs> philosophies is just, be the easiest people to work with. Our sales team, our, our operations team, our customer service team, I, I love it when somebody calls in and they're pissed and 20 minutes later, they're joking around with all my customer service guys. Mm -hmm. That is our goal. Our goal is for our sales guys, why we did our product naming and categorizing the way we did. We want to be the easiest people to work with. And that has been huge for us. We have buyers from distributors, from huge companies that come to us and say, your product line's so easy. 
holy shit, why isn't anybody else doing this? Hell yeah, we'll bring you on. This makes sense. So we've definitely, we've we've had some really fortunate things happen within the realm of the last couple of years. Nikon was a big optics provider. They kind of got out of the sport optics side, so that left a big void. Yeah. Obviously, COVID is in the record gun sales for the past I don't know, year or something, every single month, year, 18 months have been record gun sales every month. Yeah. Um, so we've had some really fortunate kind of perfect storm to come kind of grow a business into. But yeah, we've definitely, w- when people start changing their pricing because of something we did, or when people come out with a model where we're like, wait a minute, we came out with that one a year ago. Yeah. That's the that's the payoff where you're like, okay, we're actually making an impact here. Um, when a reticle gets copied or when something that you did gets knocked off (laughs) then you're like all right we'll change it because we're ahead of the game we already got a new one in the works but go ahead and use my old stuff because that means you're paying attention to me now the uh i'll say this without giving any names i was at a dinner a benefit dinner at a big event it was at a nra ila so it was like a legislative branch of of the nra we were at a dinner and i was at a table and i was just kind of talking with some of the people there and i was having a conversation with this lady across from me and we we're kind of introducing ourselves. And in the moment I said, I introduced myself, I saw this look on her face and I was like, well, it's kind of weird. And uh, she was like, oh, and got up and left. And I was like, well, that was weird. I was like, shit, did I say anything still? Something stupid? Did she say something? And uh, and I look at the guy that was one, another guy there and he's like, do you know who that is? And I was like, no. And he's like, he goes, that's the wife of one of your competitors, a really a big company in the office space. And I was like, Oh, so she does know who I am. Yeah. And, uh, and that, cause that was, that was a year or two ago. And that was a perfect example where I was like, Hey, all right. I didn't offend her. I didn't do anything wrong. She just didn't, you know, it wasn't appropriate probably for her to be sitting at the table with me or whatever she felt. So she got up and left, but I was like, all right, cool. We're, that's good. Cause that means if she knows that he knows, and yeah. if he knows the other people in his organization know, so that means we're doing something right. So yeah, it was kind of a weird, like kind of eye opening, funny thing where I was like, Shannon was trying to have fun and hang out. And clearly, clearly this lady didn't think it was appropriate to to even be at the same table as me. So, yeah, yeah, so it was kind of funny. So, yeah, I I think we're doing the right thing. I think we're we're making waves and and getting people's attention. So it's good and bad. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's nice to just fly under the radar and grow. But eventually you got to poke the bear. Any do-overs? I don't know. They're knock on wood. We haven't really had any products that flopped we haven't really i want to can i hold that one for the next time we talk yeah Yeah, no good right now honestly we've been growing so fast that even personal personal is a good one because it is hard to the work-life balance is tough i wouldn't say i would do it over but i'm trying to be better about that yeah i'm trying to be better about kind of managing this can be all consuming it Mm. can be when you start worrying about all your employees when you start worrying about you know, quotas. And when you start worrying about some of this stuff, it can get all consuming really quickly. So not necessarily a do over, but just an awareness. I've been really trying to be a lot more aware of how I spend my time and what I dedicate to it. When in the beginning as a company, you, everything is like now, 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 now. And I realized that like the majority of stuff can wait till tomorrow. I can go golf with my son or I can go on a hike or I can, it's not, as frantic as maybe you originally thought it was. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of more of a learning thing than a do-over. So far, business-wise, I, I mean, we've been doing, we made mistakes, of course, but that's part of growth. Yeah. So I, lo- I love mistakes because you're allowed to do them once. If you do the same mistake twice, then I have a problem with it. And that's something I tell yeah. everybody that when we hire them. But make mistakes, man, that's, a, that's part of growth. Yeah. 
the, you took the words out of my mouth. Really, one of the only bad mistakes is a repeated one. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and that's that's hard for people to understand, though. Uh, it sounds simple for us to sit here and, and say that, but to get an employee to be comfortable with mistakes, that's a hard thing for them to to people to get. Mm-hmm. I've I've come to find out because they're they're very hesitant to want to make mistakes, especially, like I said, some of the employees that are very bought in, very, you know, want to see success for our company and for our brand. They don't want to make mistakes. So to get them to, Hey, that's actually part of the process. Yeah. Just don't do it twice. Definitely don't do it three times. Make that mistake because that's how we learn, you know? So that's been a, that's been a fun learning thing for myself and for, for our team. I know I'm taking you over, but we have a question on the show that we ask every guest. Yeah. So after covering, you know, this whole like past 20 years, but <laughs> yeah. you back into your, you know, yeah. where you came from, who are you today if you never served? Ooh, good question. Holy shit. I don't know. I don't know what I'd be doing. Probably be working on a ranch in Montana still. That's a good question. I'm definitely going to sit on that one for a little while and think, because I think that is such a defining especially at a young age, being, you know, 19 years old, going into the military, it forced me to grow up. It forced me to do a lot of things at a young age that a lot of my peers at that time weren't doing. Mm. I don't know. I'm glad I'm not. (laughs) I don't know. I'm glad I'm not the other side of that because I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. You know, that's a tough one because it is so much of what kind of has made me and defined me and, you know, the discipline and a lot of that. So I'd hate to meet the other guy, to be honest with you. Yeah. The development at that, like, that's such a critical age and to be able to i guess make that decision you know completely alters your course well i mean i think i think for most people some people maybe not but yeah yeah it's hard for it to not if you you know if you really went through that process so yeah yeah that's a great question i like that one thanks yeah Yeah, that's good (laughs) yeah yeah. it makes you think i don't know where the hell i'd be yeah that's perfect i gotta give a shout out to ben uh because he put us together ben bueller garcia runs uh american warrior network on the radio yep so i, I listened to your episode with him too he's a great patriot yeah. uh, i got introduced to him by uh nelson miller mm-hmm. who we had on i don't know maybe like five months back or so nice he he started the trident owns all the tridents here in town yeah i don't know if you met him but yeah nelson's a good guy it's still got one of our ride on stickers like in the middle of his door on his bar so oh, <laughs> yeah nice. yeah nice. I, I need to get him in here i haven't seen him in probably a year now with everything that's been going on yeah both of them i mean huge yeah like the the, like the readiness that like the immediacy where nelson honestly like i've known him for a while but texted him and i was like hey any chance you might want to be on like a podcast or something he's like sure where and when you know (laughs) it just like shows up totally 100 genuine and then uh you know ben called me like the next day after after nelson put us in touch and you know, it told me like everything that he's been doing with, uh, you know, try to share people's stories. And a funny thing, too, is our show logo and his show logo are like so close together. He could probably sue us. Oh, seriously? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we don't have any money. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so go ahead. Yeah. Like, knock yourself out, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, but, I mean, I, was, really? I looked at He gave me his business card. I was like. Wait a minute. What? Uh, huh? what? That's hilarious. Yeah. yeah, he's a good dude. We actually did a podcast for the Rattam podcast with him. Um, I was on his show. Oh, it's probably been a year and a half or so now. Um, so we had him on ours and just, yeah. he's fun. We just sit and, and BS for hours if we wanted to. Yeah. Oh, one um, last thing since yeah. I'm looking at your hat and the flag behind you. Yeah. The name. 
So ride on, everybody mispronounces it, but once they get it, they realize how many times you say ride on every day. Um, so it's a take on kind of that, you know, R-I-G-H-T-O-N. Um, it, it came about, I say it's actually harder to name a business than it is to pick a name for your kid. The, uh, it literally, it, when well, we no were businesses in the Bible, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then no, no hand-me-down names for your dad was my dad. I named my son Jack after my dad. That was super easy, right? Yeah. But no business to name that after. Um, it, when we were trying to come up with a name for the company, I was at a, at a shooting range, an indoor shooting range one day. And I literally heard people be like, man, that was right on. Like, or well, you're right. You know, it, they just kept saying right on, right on. And like, I felt like every time somebody would say it, I like, it like, got louder mm. and i was like holy shit that's i don't want r-i-g-h-t space on i want to play on that and then you realize like now that you're thinking about it you will hear somebody say right on a hundred times today because yeah. it's just somebody like oh right on man yeah how's it going yeah. you know and it's so it just became something that it was if we can get something that sticks in people's minds and it also has a Kind of some of the initial ones were like right on target, right on price, right on quality, right we're we're right on and all the different things that we do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it just kind of stuck, and then we kind of shortened it to R I T O N and just kind of ran with it. So, but a gun range, indoor gun range in Virginia is where that one came from. Nice. I'll probably yeah. say that to like five people when I live here. <laughs> you will. You're like yeah. right on, man. You're like ah, oh, damn it, Brady. Yeah. yeah like yeah. yes. Every time someone says right on, and they think of me, I won. So yeah. it's perfect. Awesome. So. All right, thanks for being on. Thanks for hosting. Yeah, you're welcome yeah. anytime, man. I'm glad this worked out. Yeah, it's great. Perfect. <laughs> All right. I love it. Let's wrap it up. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Brady making the world of optics more accessible to more people. Check out RightOn at RightOnOptics.com. That's R-I-T-O-N Optics.com. Maybe even have a look at RightOn University. As always, thanks for listening. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What.